We're, uh, we're a few in number here this morning, but probably full of zeal and enthusiasm, right? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Jesus made a promise about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. I've always liked that beatitude because um, it didn't really make me responsible for being filled. It just made me responsible for being hungry. So if I can devote myself to whetting a spiritual appetite, if I can just want in my wanter to know and to appreciate, understand, and do the things of God, then God's going to set the table for me. I just got to want it, and he will provide. So we'll come this morning hungering and thirsting after righteousness and imagine that good Lord himself is uh, setting a banquet table for us. It's awfully hard to get people inside from the outside in weather like this. Well, you, and you've got coffee and you've got friends. So, but we're going to get started, okay? So shall we pray? Heavenly Father, for the beauty of creation, we give you thanks for the many ways in which you step from behind the veil and you show yourself to us. The order... And the beauty and the reproductiveness and the purposefulness of creation, we thank you and we see you, Lord. We see you. And in the smiles of those who love you and love us, we see you. And in the written word, which we are about to make the spoken and heard word, we see you. The world is wrong. You are not invisible. You're just all around us. But those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear and those with hearts hungering for your righteousness give you thanks and we welcome the presence of your Holy Spirit. We yield ourselves to his teaching. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Do you remember the television series, The Waltons? They're redoing some of that, they're rebroadcasting some of that now on, on cable. Uh, you remember how every episode would end? There was the picture of the old farmhouse and the lights were going out and you would hear, good night, Elizabeth, and, and, and uh, goodbye, John Boy, good night, John Boy, and all these things. So I, I want you to imagine... Uh, that you live in a house with, um, let's see, at least seven children. The lights are clicking out at the end of the day, and here's what you're hearing. Good night, James. Good night, Josie. Good night, Judas. Good night, Jesus. If you grew up in the house of Jesus, in the family of Jesus, you might very well have heard that. Because we know from Scripture, Jesus was one of at least seven children in the house of Mary and Joseph. Told that in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in chapter 13, and it is uh, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
and his brethren, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters, plural. So we know there were at least two girls, there were at least five boys, and there may have been other girls. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be a child in that house? Actually, grow up under the same roof with Jesus. And to to see him as a child and to know him as a sibling and to play make-believe with him or or run and catch with him or uh, to be called to the dinner table with him or to divide the household chores with him. Do you imagine that, that his siblings had any sense of awe about him? You think that the brothers and sisters of Jesus could have uh, in any way picked up on his being special. Well, in, uh, in their early adulthood, we don't get that sense right away. There was this time early in the ministry of Jesus in which the word was out about all that he was teaching and all that he was doing, and, and his mother Mary and his brothers and sisters came looking for him and they thought that, thought that there was something wrong with him. And they wanted to take him home. And there was another occasion when he was performing marvelous works and teachings in uh, the Galilee area, or I'm sorry, in the, in the area of, of, of um, Nazareth. And his brother said to him, you don't need to be here doing this stuff. You need to go to Jerusalem. But they almost did it in kind of a confrontational, taunting way. Because the scripture says at that time they did not believe in him. But the years passed, and along comes James. James, the brother of Jesus. Listed First, in Matthew's little record of the family nucleus, it's thought that James would have been the first naturally born child, because simply that was the way it was in those days. They would, they would name people in order of importance or in order of birth, and James was listed first before the other brothers and sisters. So there was this child, James, grew up under the same roof with Jesus. He was possibly the sibling closest to Jesus, emotionally and relationally, simply because of his age. And he disappears for a while, and then he reappears in Scripture, and he is one of the pillars of the church. Let me give you a little bit of scriptural background on James before we consider his particular contribution to the, to the shaping of the early church. Something of a profile of him so that we might understand better uh, his particular contribution to the developing church. Um, there is a verse that says that after Jesus appeared to all these others, after in his resurrection appearances, 
he appeared also to James. That's his brother. Now, where do you have a record of that resurrection in scriptures? You don't. You just have this singular mention that Jesus appeared to James. That's, that same scripture says that Jesus appeared to Peter. Where do you have a record of that resurrection appearance? You don't. That's another one. There were at least, at least two very personal, high-profile post-resurrection appearances that Jesus made that are only alluded to in Scripture, but we have no detail whatsoever about what was said, where they met, circumstances around it, but one of those was to James. And you have to wonder if there was any fraternal connection between Jesus and James in that meeting. If, if, if Jesus went beyond the relationships he had with the masses or even with, uh, with, with Peter and John, when he came, to, Peter, James and John, when he came to his brother, James. So there was, there was some kind of special significance in the eyes of Jesus about James that would cause him to make an individual appearance to him after he was crucified and resurrected. Scripture also tells us that following the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and after the scales of blindness was lifted from his eyes and he was taken into Jerusalem by other believers, they, they brought him to, uh, or, or Paul brought him to James. Now all the people that they may have taken Paul to, they took him to this man who was the brother of Jesus, which says what to us? That he was by that time an influential personality in the early church. He was a leader of the early church. That's in Galatians. Another reference in Galatians says that James, along with Peter and John, welcomed Paul when he came in. So there is this central committee, maybe, what do we call them? You know, these three leaders, Peter and James and John, are welcoming Paul as he comes into Jerusalem. Now let's, let's make something clear here. The James that we're talking about this morning, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, if you want to be technical, was not an apostle. That was a different James. The, the Peter, James, and John, whose three names you, have, you hear always mentioned together, are separate from this James. That James was the brother of John, son of Zebedee, and he was martyred early by Herod. The James that we're talking about this morning is the half-brother of, of Jesus. So he has risen into a place of leadership. He has come from a time in life in which he did not believe in Jesus and almost taunted Jesus to go do his stuff somewhere else and, and who at one time came with his mother Mary to rescue Jesus from himself because he was going mad and take him home. He has moved from that to a place of central leadership in the early church. Probably not very easy sometimes to adore somebody about whom you know so much. You know, when we live together as spouses, when we grow up together as siblings, uh, we see both sides, right? And it's kind of hard 
to completely let yourself go in total adoration sometimes, uh, although many of us, like, like me, have good reason to adore our spouses. But James has come so far now in this. Um, <clears throat> when Peter is released from, from prison by angelic intervention, and he goes to the house where the disciples are meeting, uh, he, he doesn't stay. He just says, go tell James. And he goes somewhere else. Why James? Because James must have risen to a place, place of great significance and authority in this early Christian movement. Now, in the scripture that we have noted for today in our, in our syllabus, uh, James is one of the leaders of the church when Paul comes, tells the church in Jerusalem that the gospel has been received by the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles, Do you have any instructions for them? Paul himself is deferring to this inner group of new leadership, one of which is James, who grew up with Jesus in the same house. This is Acts 15. So the report comes to this council in Jerusalem, about the Gentiles receiving the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And after a time of soul-searching and reflection, it is James who speaks. And let's read that. If you have your Bibles with you, go, go with me to Acts 15. And if you don't have your Bible, just listen along. And let's hear what James has to say. James, the brother of Jesus has to say about this report of the Gentiles receiving the gospel and what are they going to do. And after they had held their peace, thought about it, James answered, oh, this is uh, verse 13, Acts 15, 13. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, Simon Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is, now listen to this, my, singular, not plural. We've not talked about this. We've not prayed about this. This is my ruling. What does that say to us about James, the brother of Jesus? He very well may have been, by this point, the top man in the early church. Wherefore, my sentence is, and listen to this, that we trouble them not. That is, trouble the Gentiles not, who are turned to God, 
but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. In other words, if they want to know more about Moses, they can just get that on their own. It's in every synagogue, everywhere. What do they need to hear from us? Then pleased at the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, named Barsabbas and Silas, chief men among the brethren, wrote letters, sent greetings, and told them, in essence, we're not going to hold you to the Mosaic law. And we're not going to leave stumbling blocks in your way to the cross of Jesus Christ by all of these commands and all of these rules and all of these restrictions. There were 627 of them. When the rabbis got hold of the Old Testament, they wrote a commentary. They wrote commentaries on the Old Testament. And these commentaries would interpret what was written down as the law and it ended up this massive volume of how many steps you can walk on the Sabbath, how heavy a load you could carry on the Sabbath, what's ritualistically clean, what's ritualistically unclean, and on and on and on and on. And even the, even the Pharisees themselves who devoted their life to interpreting the law by living it out had trouble keeping all these commands. So James says, we're not doing this anymore. And we are not going to put this kind of impediment in front of the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them without all this stuff. They are coming to the name of Christ. We would like to ask them, however, and recommend to them that they do stay away from meat which was given to idols. Now, why would James single that out? Because it was a hot issue. And he was just saying, don't, don't cause anybody else you know, to sin or... Don't get embroiled in this. Just kind of go along with not eating meat offered to idols, even though idols are nothing. And what James does is James lowers the bar, lowers the bar for Gentiles coming in. They don't have to jump so high to get in. But he raises the bar of grace. And more than any other character in the earliest days of the Christian church, James, the brother of Jesus, clears the way to the Gentiles coming in with an official dictum from the leadership at the church in Jerusalem. Now, where did James Get that grace. Who did he grow up with? Have you ever wondered where Jesus got this concept of God being like a loving Heavenly Father? That's not Old Testament. God is rarely referred to in the Old Testament as a father. You know what he's referred to in the Old Testament? As a husband. Israel's the bride. He's the groom. 
That's the dominant theme. That's the dominant metaphor. In the Old Testament, God is like a husband. And his wife ran around on him. And he, and he called her back. He's faithful to her. He loves her anyway. He does good things for her. Where did Jesus come up with this new, powerful metaphor of God being like a lovingly, loving, heavenly Father? Well, what father did Jesus grow up with? Do you remember the response of Joseph when he thought Mary was pregnant? When he learned Mary was pregnant? Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to shame her, but intended to divorce her quietly. Grace. The father of this house, the biological father of this house, was a man of grace. Jesus got it. And just maybe Jesus, in his humanness, looked at his earthly father Joseph and said, there is a divine quality about this man. You wonder just how much Jesus knew about himself. At about age 12, remember this infamous trip to Jerusalem where he stayed behind? Mary and Joseph spend three days looking for him and they come back and they find him in the temple courts and he is dialoguing with the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and they are amazed at him. So Jesus must have had some self-awareness. There must have been points of distinctiveness in the personhood of Jesus that was picked up on by those he lived with, including James. So it's possible that Jesus borrows from Joseph grace, James borrows from Jesus grace, The Gentiles borrow from James grace. Do you see how we are all interconnected? All of us. And we're like links in a chain. And we think we just pull in one chain behind us. No, it doesn't work like that. It goes back generations. Or even in social networks, like, like here. We probably are connected with each other in ways we'll never see until we get to the other side. Our spiritual eyes really see how God has interlinked us. And one person influences another person who influences another person who influences another person. But our point is, in our look at profiles in the early church, men and women who shaped the early church, and to look for their contributions and their significance... When we come to James, who grew up in the same house with Jesus, we see that he has ascended possibly to the highest position of leadership in the early church. We don't know how he got there. We don't know much about him beyond this. We, we don't know the moment of awareness. We don't know the moment of yielding of himself to his brother as God. It's going to be a great story when we hear it one day, isn't it? A lot of good stories waiting for us. 
But we know that he was there. Quite a leap of faith. Jesus had gone back to Nazareth, remember? After doing miracles in Capernaum. And uh, that's where that scripture comes from. Where's this man get all this stuff? How's he performing all these great deeds? Where's he getting all this wisdom? We know his mama. We know know his daddy. We know his brothers and sisters. And the scripture says Jesus could do no great works there because of their unbelief. It's just really kind of hard to move beyond knowing somebody a long time to think that they're super special, isn't it? Oh, that's just Jesus. (laughs) That's just Joseph's boy, you know? Um, and Jesus gives us this little saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. So he goes back to Nazareth where they know him and his family and they don't honor him. And even Jesus Christ, son of the almighty God, could not do many great works there because of their lack of faith. Because they knew him. How did James get there? I just don't know how he got there. But he did get there. And he moved beyond Jesus, my older brother, to Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Remarkable, remarkable leap of faith from one to the other, don't you think? Remarkable leap. And then James comes out with this dictum. We're not going to make the Gentiles do all this crazy stuff. We're not going to make them count how many steps they walk on the Sabbath. We're not going to make them weigh how heavy a bag is they carry on the Sabbath. We're not going to worry them with ritualistic uh, issues of clean and unclean and on and what they can eat and what they can't eat. Just a few things so that they will walk in peace and harmony with the world. Stay away from idols. I mean, time, these are timeless things. Timeless things. And he tears down this great wall between Gentile and Jew so that they can have access to Jesus Christ. What was the tearing of the temple veil at the death of Jesus on the cross all about anyway? Jesus breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was a symbol for something, wasn't it? What was it? That that which separated man from the Holy of Holies is ripped from the top, heaven, to the bottom. A, a gust of wind would tear from the bottom up. You've got a rod up here holding the curtain. But it's torn in two from top to bottom, sing, signifying... Exactly what James has done here. Whosoever will come. Whosoever will come. Makes no difference if you're Gentile or Jew or black or white or male or female or young or old. All these things that came down from Moses, which, which Paul said were like, was like a babysitter. Paul said the law was like a babysitter, a custodian of a child, just to kind of keep you safe until the real truth, the rest of the story came. So James just sets it aside. And he blesses the Gentiles with a letter which would be an, an official decree. 
this, this would be an epistle, a, 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 a circulatory epistle, which probably was copied over and over, and it was spread out into, into the secular world so that the Gentiles could know that they were no longer responsible for Orthodox law. And who did it? James, the brother of Jesus, did it. Were we to perpetuate his ministry and his call among ourselves now, would there be ways in which we could continue to tear down the walls between people who are on the inside of the kingdom and people who are on the outside of the kingdom? I mean, is there anything that remains to be torn down? I mean, if James gave us this great precedent in representing his brother, Jesus, by not requiring all of this cultural law stuff from the Gentiles when they come to Christ, if he set a precedent for you and me, what remains to be done? Well, thankfully, we see a lot of it done. There's probably a lot more, but I mean, um, look, uh, those of you who have been in church all of your lives um, and can think back to church, what it was like when you were a kid, uh, would you dare come to, to church in anything but your dress clothes? <laughs> Suddenly it's okay to come in shorts and a t-shirt, isn't it? Somebody's tearing a wall down. Would you ever have thought to bring coffee into the sanctuary? Somebody's tearing a wall down. Would you ever have thought that you might have a dozen translations of the Bible to choose from and not just the King James? Some of them which are not literal translations, but they are paraphrases to get as deeply into the secular vernacular as they possibly can. Somebody's tearing down walls. Blacks and whites. Would you ever have imagined when you were a little child that some congregations look like rainbow coalitions? Red and yellow, black and white, they really and truly are precious and exciting. They can come to this church. The ministry, the signature, the ministry of Jesus, I mean of James, who was the head of the early church in Jerusalem. The signature ministry in my mind of James was he started tearing down some mighty big walls and requiring nothing but faith in Christ to come to him, along with some requests, really, more than anything, about staying away from idols and not getting embroiled. And that is not necessary. Do you think, converse to my earlier question, do you think, um, are there ways in which we are rebuilding walls? Um, I've pastored Baptist churches for about 30 years. Um, And I watched uh, regularly requirements being written for who could serve as a deacon or who could serve on ministerial staff. And I can remember times of uncomfortableness in thinking, 
Boy, these, we're being harder on these people than Jesus is. I, 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 mean, did, did, I mean, it's a nice thing, but did Jesus require you to tithe in order to be a deacon? Uh, did, did Jesus require that you come to church every time the doors open to serve him? Um, did you really and truly have to be a perfect model of, of, uh, of family at home, or your, your spouse and your children and all these things? I know that you know, there, there is scripture which encourages us to follow a, an ideal. But is it really what the Lord wants when we take an ideal that he sets up in front of all of us? You know, Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the ideal, right? How many of us reach the ideal? You think I'm a clergy because I ever, ever, ever reach that ideal? Be ye therefore perfect, so I earn the right to be ordained? Baloney. It is sheer kosher baloney. I think we get in these self-righteous snits in which we start requiring of people more than Jesus requires of people. Well, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to be this, and you got to be that. You turn down people for places of service, even ordination maybe. Turn down people for places of service um, because we're harder on them than James was and where did he get his grace? From his bubba. He grew up in the same house with Jesus. You know the difference between, I know you don't I have to remember myself eisegesis and exegesis wonderful Greek words we preachers love to throw around Greek Makes you think we're smart. Uh, exegesis is good. Exegesis is to take the scripture and draw the meaning out of it. That's exegesis. Look at the Bible. What does it say? Take it out, pass it around. The opposite of that is eisegesis. You know what eisegesis means? It means to shove meaning into the scripture. Ah. Sometimes we do that, don't we? It's like taking a, a round peg and pounding it into a square hole. The Bible's going to say this by the time I'm finished with it. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? We're building walls. If James, the brother of Jesus, had that mentality in Jerusalem, and Paul came, Barnabas came, He would have said something like, well, Moses is preaching every synagogue everywhere on every Lord, every Sabbath. They can just go get it themselves and they better be good because we're watching. But instead, there's this great overture of grace. I think probably that James, the brother of Jesus, is an unsung hero in Scripture. We, uh, we don't talk too much about him. And we get him confused all the time with... Um, the other James, who was the brother of John. But there is one more testimony to James, the brother of Jesus. He wrote a book called James. Called James. 
And in the book of James, the author gives us some of the most beautiful imagery and insights, practical applications of our faith that we find anywhere in the New Testament. It's almost as if he picked up a little of his brother's flair. For Jesus had a way for words. Jesus had a way for picture building in vocabulary. James said things like a, a, a tongue out of control is like a ship without a rudder, <laughs> right? Uh, or a man without faith shouldn't expect to get anything because we are in a faith relationship with God and, and, and on and on. The connection that we want to make with James in the early church, however, is probably not that book. I think the singular signatory contribution that James, the brother of Jesus, made as a man who shaped the early church was this verdict from the council in Jerusalem in which he primarily made this decision on his own, apparently. And he said, you go back and tell them that we're not going to put stumbling blocks in front of them. We're not going to make it harder. We're going to make it easier for them to come to Christ. And you know the rest of the story. The gospel just spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean basin. Uh, Apostles went to the west. Paul went to the west, established the western branch of the church. Other apostles like Thomas went to the east, established the eastern branch of the church. But the point was, they were let out of the gate by James to take a gospel of grace. They did not come with a burdensome set of requirements. Come to Jesus Christ, follow him and him alone. And that's enough. Somewhere, there ought to be a monument. There ought to be a statue. There ought to be some place where those of us who are links in the chain far, 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 far down the generation from James can look back or just put our hands on the chain and give it a tug and see it ripple itself all the way back to that edict of grace pronounced by James who was the brother of Jesus. So, James tore down walls to make it easier for people to come. How about you and me? Can we make it easier in any way for others to come? Reflect on this this week, class. And as you remember James, go thou and do likewise. God bless. One more meeting. We meet next Sunday, and then that's it. Uh, If you have a syllabus, the the syllabus is actually wrong. We're not just looking at Apollo next week. We're also looking at Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know how in the world 